Good morning. Good morning. Well, way back when I was 22 years old and in my last semester of college, I was on the plumbing crew at my university. And I'd actually been on the plumbing crew for several, several years, but for whatever reason, this semester, the way my class schedule worked out, I had all my classes in the afternoon, so I worked on the plumbing crew from 8 to 12 every morning, 20 hours a week. And it also happened that on top of that, all of the other student uh, plumber assistants had all their classes in the morning, and so they all worked in the afternoon. So every day for four hours, it was just me and the plumber. For whatever reason, it wasn't all that busy that semester, which was abnormal. We just, for whatever reason, didn't have a lot of work orders coming in. And it afforded a lot of time for me and the plumber to sit there in the plumbing truck and talk. And I have had many spiritual influences in my life. Some of them seminary professors with more letters after their name than the alphabet. But none of them had the impact on my life that this plumber who didn't even graduate high school had on me. The man loved Jesus. And he knew his Bible. I'd been a Christian for about four years at that point, And I'd studied my Bible a little bit. But I don't think I fully accepted it as God's Word until that semester. That plumber in that plumbing truck, 20 hours a week, challenged every shallow theological belief I had in my young Christian brain. And we spent a lot of time that semester in Romans chapter 9. And honestly, my faith was crashing against the reality of Romans chapter 9. The plumber, he was faithful uh, and patient with me. He just kept consistently pointing me back to the Scripture saying, this is God's Word. And I don't have 20 hours a week for a semester to spend with you guys in Romans 9 this morning, only a few hours. Um, the joke never gets old. I don't know why. Uh, but I hope that what you will see as we go through this, and we're not going to be done in Romans chapter 9 after today, but I hope that what you're going to see as we go through this chapter is that that rock upon which my faith was crashing can be a firm foundation upon which a deeper and richer trust in the Lord can be built. So in this chapter... Paul's going to shift a little bit from the argument that he's been on for a while, and he's going to deal with a question. It's a tough question, or rather the answer to the question is tough, and Tim alluded to this. I don't mean that it's difficult to understand. I actually think the text is pretty straightforward, more straightforward than many of the texts that we've already covered in Romans. It's not hard to understand, but if you've never spent any time in Romans 9, it may be difficult to accept. 
So as we study through Romans 9, you're going to have to regularly ask yourself, do I trust God and do I trust His Word? The same God that we saw in Romans 8, the God who is with us in our suffering, the God who works all things together for good, this God from whom nothing can separate us, do we really trust Him? Will I trust in the who, even if I can't fully understand the why? So the question that leads to all of this that Paul wants to answer is this. What about Israel? Everything that Paul has discussed in eight chapters of Romans, fantastic truths about Jesus, justification, Gentiles welcome into the kingdom of God, but what about God's people to whom the original promise of salvation was made? What about Israel? So let's see, dive into Romans 9. We're going to cover uh, the first 18 verses of the chapter. And I'm going to leave us kind of in the middle of his argument, but frankly, I didn't have three hours uh, to spend, so that's kind of how it worked out. But we're going to seek to answer this question that Paul is hinting at. What about Israel. So open up to chapter 9 of Romans if you're not already there. We're going we're gonna to stay the entire time in that text. Romans 9, 1 through 18. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we have come before you, acknowledged your greatness, acknowledged our sin and our fallenness. And Father, in that state, we are incapable of grasping even the most basic truths of Scripture, let alone the things that fight against our flesh and are difficult for us to accept. So Father, we pray. We pray that the Spirit would come and work in our hearts and in our minds to reveal the plain truth of this text to us. God, we know that our own understanding is lacking, so we pray for the help that we need to be able to take your word for what it is. God, we know that you are faithful in giving your word. We know that the Spirit can work these things in us, and we pray in the name of Jesus that that's exactly what would happen. Amen. So Paul's question, what about Israel? What about God's promises to Israel? The first five verses of Romans kind of imply this question. And we see Paul get pretty honest about his feelings towards his Jewish kinsmen. So he says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because not every Jew is a Christian. In Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the hope. That's where Paul is coming from. If God fulfills this promise through His Son, why don't all the Jews to whom this promise was made, why don't they believe in His Son? Paul's going to address that question, but first let's look at what he has to say about the Jews here. He says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says he wishes that he could take the place of all of the Jews who aren't Christians, that he, Paul, might be condemned in order that the Jews might be saved. And look, Paul knows that this isn't possible. He knows that it doesn't work this way, but he's conveying just how deeply this great sorrow and unceasing anguish is that he has over the fact that not all of the Israelites will be saved. He knows that they're not all saved, and it breaks his heart. The Jews, the Israelites, they're the ones to whom belong adoption as sons. Glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, and the promises. God made covenants with His people. He gave them the tabernacle and later the temple that they might worship Him. All of His promises were to them. And look at verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So he says all these famous people who figure prominently in salvation history, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, they're all Jews. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus himself is a Jew. So we have to deal with this question of what about the Jews? If all of this is true, Either God broke His promise, or we don't understand the promise in the first place. And before we move into answering the question, quick aside, 
really has nothing to do with the main point of the text, but it's here. So while we're here, let's take a very brief look at it. Look at the compassion that Paul has for his lost brothers. He understands that he can't trade places with them. He gets it. But he cares so much about them. And the fact that not all of them will be saved, that he says he could wish that he could be condemned in order that they might be saved. He knows it's not possible, but I believe he actually meant it. What compassion he has for the lost. Do we have that same compassion that Paul did? Do we care so much? Do we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the lost in our lives? If we do, then we need to be just like Paul. He obviously couldn't trade places with the lost, but you know what he could and did do? He preached the gospel and he evangelized. He told the lost about Jesus at great personal sacrifice. His compassion for the lost led him to do that. Do we have that same compassion? Again, not the main point. So back on track. What about the Jews? Paul has such compassion for his people, knowing that all of them aren't going to be saved, but God's promise was to them. So maybe God's promise wasn't fulfilled. Maybe God's word to his people had failed. Look in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, interesting. So he made promises, and those promises seem to have not been fulfilled. Not all of the Jews are saved, so it kind of seems like maybe his word has failed. And Paul gets that this is a possible objection, and he's going to show those who raise such an objection that they didn't understand the promise of God in the first place. So the answer to what about the Jews is not, well, God's promise to them failed. Verse 6, because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. But what in the world is he talking about? It seems straightforwardly true and obvious that if you're Jewish, then you're a Jew. Verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. <laughs> if you are an offspring of Abraham, you are by definition his child. It would be like me saying to Jack, hey, you're my offspring, but you're not my child. It doesn't make any sense. But Paul continues. He helps us understand and see what he's talking about. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So now we see, okay, there's something special about Isaac. Abraham, you'll recall, had another son, Ishmael. Ishmael was not the one through whom God's promise was to come. Paul points this out in verse 9. God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. They got impatient because she was barren. They failed to trust God. They decided to go on their own. And Abraham takes Hagar as his wife, and they have Ishmael. But they defied God in this and sought to make his promise happen on their own terms. So what's Paul's point? His point is, it's not just the flesh of Abraham who receives the promise, because through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The promise is restricted to those who have 
received the promise. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Isaac was the first child of the promise. So Paul is showing us here that it's not about fleshly, biological descendants. So what about the Jews? Well, it's true that not all Jews are saved, because, but that's because it's not about heredity. You don't inherit salvation. It's about the promise. He goes further. Not just Sarah, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, she was told the older will serve the younger. So it wasn't just Isaac through whom the promise was to come, but only through one of Isaac's sons. So Abraham had his firstborn Ishmael, promise came through Isaac. Isaac had his firstborn Esau, promise came through Jacob. So this is completely unexpected from a worldly standpoint, especially when you think back to their ancient Near Eastern culture. But you would think by now that we all understand that God doesn't do things the way that man expects him to. He doesn't choose the firstborn as the child of the promise. But maybe, maybe he saw something in Jacob. Maybe he saw something in Jacob's future that merited his favor. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So no, God didn't pick Jacob to be the one through whom the promise came because of anything good he had done or would do. Jacob, in that sense, did not deserve it any more than Esau did. It was not because of works, but because of him who calls. Not because of works, but because of God. So what about the Jews? Paul is showing us that God has always been selective about who receives the promise of salvation. The promise is not about flesh. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're firstborn. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. None of that saves you. God doesn't work the way that we might expect. The promise is not about the flesh. The promise is about faith. The children of the promise are those who have faith in the promised one, Jesus. So God's promise is bigger than just one nation. It's bigger than one ethnic group. It's to all people across the globe throughout history, people who don't look like us or act like us. The promise is not restricted in that sense in any way. Receiving the promise is not about flesh. You'll remember from Romans 2, verse 29, Paul tells us that a Jew is one who is one inwardly. So all of us who have faith in Jesus are children of Abraham, not in the flesh, but children of the promise. True Israel is about faith, not flesh. 
So then a new question pops up if you're tracking with Paul's argument. <clears throat> if this is done this way, as he says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, we see in verse 11, we know from this passage and so many others in Romans and elsewhere in Scripture that the promised salvation is not about works. What is it about? It's about Him who calls. So who calls? God calls. You might expect Paul to say, because he said this elsewhere, it's about faith. And some have faith while others don't. In other words, you might expect Paul to ground his understanding of who accepts this promise in man and whether or not any given man has faith. It's absolutely true that we're saved by faith, but Paul doesn't stop there. Where does Paul ground salvation? Salvation rests in the hands of God himself. He says, it's not about works, but it's about him who calls. Look in verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is less here about hate the way that we would think of it and more about rejection. So Jacob he chose, Esau he rejected. But what is the basis of God's choosing? It's not anything in Jacob or Esau. It's not anything that they've done. Paul makes that crystal clear. The basis is him who calls. So Paul's explanation is God chose. What about the Jews? The promise of God. The word hasn't failed because God keeps his promise through his sovereign choice. So if we're summing up, up to this point, the question, what about the Jews? God made him a promise. Not all of them are saved. Maybe God failed to keep his promise. No, he didn't fail to keep his promise. Anyone who thinks that doesn't understand the promise. The promise isn't to one, isn't one to all of Abraham's flesh. Isaac and Jacob make that clear. And being children of the promise means having faith, and that faith comes from God himself. I know what some of you are thinking. Because when I was sitting in that plumbing truck 18 years ago, I was thinking the same thing. If God chooses, and that's what saves me, then that's not fair. Some are saved and some aren't just because God chooses? That seems so arbitrary. Apparently, the Roman church was a lot like me and my kids and all of us. We hear that at my house all the time. That's not fair. All the time. It drives me crazy. But you know what's funny is most of the time I don't throw down the because I said so. When my kids say that, what I often try to do is I try to justify to them whatever choices have led to my decision which they deemed unfair. So take, for example, dessert. 
Kids want dessert. Maybe the older one gets a little bit more dessert than the younger one. And when I'm told that's not fair, I go into explanation mode and I'm like, well, you see, he's older. I'm like calculating BMI over there to figure out why one kid gets two scoop and the other one gets 2.67 scoops of ice cream. Or allowance. Why does one get more allowance than the other? Well, you see, he's capable of doing more than you are and doing more work, he gets paid more for it. This is how we think. Buried down deep in us is this sense of, that's not fair. It's true of us, and it was true of the folks in the Roman church, and Paul anticipates this. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's not fair. What does Paul say? By no means. Our faith comes from God's sovereign choice. So Paul says, do we look at God and say, that's not fair, that's not just. He says, by no means. Human nature lends to us looking at everything in terms of fairness and justice. And I'm sorry to tell you, if you're looking for a detailed explanation of why God chooses the way He does. If you're looking for something along the lines of how I explain, uh, explain the dessert allotment to my kids, then you're going to be disappointed. Paul doesn't give that kind of explanation, and so I can't give that kind of explanation either. But what does he tell us? Verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul is quoting Exodus 33, 19 here, where Moses is before God. This is right after the golden calf incident, and he's interceding on behalf of his people. So they're very much deserving of judgment. And God says to him, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's interesting to me that the objection that Paul anticipates is about injustice. The explanation that we get from him does not tell us why God is just. He answers with mercy. Why? Because salvation is not a matter of justice. If God is just without mercy, no one is saved. Remember, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.14, death reigned in Adam. If God is just without being merciful, then sin means that we receive judgment, and that judgment is eternal death. The question isn't, why are some condemned? We know the answer to that question. Without God's mercy, sin condemns us all. Without God's mercy, we are all doomed. If we want to talk about justice, we want to talk about fairness, we can't say it's not fair that some are condemned. We should all be condemned to death. If we want to talk about fairness, the only one we can look to and make that argument is Jesus. What happened to Jesus is not fair. Jesus is the only human who ever walked the face of the planet 
who didn't deserve to die for sin because he didn't have any. Yet he did. He died for our sin. The baseline here is not neutrality. And what I mean is, it's not as if we're all going down the middle of the road and God is looking at us and he's saying, okay, yeah, this one to hell, this one to hell, this one to heaven. No. God is not neutral with regard to sin. We are all condemned to hell in our sin. The baseline is condemnation. In our sin, that is our natural state. So the question isn't, why does God condemn some and save others? The question is, given that we're all condemned, why does God save anyone? And the statement from God to Moses that we just read in Exodus 33, it it echoes the statement to Moses that God made in Exodus 3.14. Remember, Moses says, okay, if I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to go to the people of Israel, who exactly am I supposed to say sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. This incredible name of God, it echoes his self-existence, his lack of dependence on any other creature, his presence with Moses and the people. There's so much there that this sermon doesn't have anything to do with. But in Exodus 33:19, when God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, which Paul quoted here in Romans 9, it's as if he's saying, in the same way that he said, I am, it's, he's, it's as if he's saying, I will. Right? I will that I will. Verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We don't deserve mercy. But anyone God chooses to save, we're saved because of His mercy. There's a tension here. Justice and mercy are both served. It's not as if in His mercy, God sets His justice aside. The penalty of sin didn't decrease one bit. The penalty was received in full by Jesus, and that's God's mercy to us. Jesus' willing sacrifice, taking the penalty of our sin, that's God's mercy to us. We didn't deserve it. Jesus didn't deserve the judgment. But it went down that way that we might be saved to God's glory. So I think by now, we're all pretty clear, having gone through Romans, on Paul's teaching about faith. We're saved by faith, not by works. What Paul makes explicit here in Romans 9 is that we are not the source of our own faith. You see, some people will tell you they believe in salvation by faith alone, but then tell you that faith is up to them. I believe. I have faith. If you think that the source of your belief and faith is in you, then you're completely missing the point that Paul is making here. And not just here, but all over his writings. If you believe that, then you believe that faith itself is a work. And remember, it depends not on human will or exertion. You didn't do anything to save yourself. Even the faith that you have depends on God who has mercy.
Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so why does, why does Paul bring Pharaoh into this? So he's quoting Exodus 9.16. Now, do we associate Pharaoh with good or evil? Evil, okay? Pharaoh was a bad dude. Exodus tells us that Pharaoh was so, his heart was so hard that when Moses came to him and said, let my people go or else, he wouldn't do it. And he got the or else ten times, and he still wouldn't do it. Exodus doesn't just tell us that Pharaoh's heart was hard, though. It tells us that Pharaoh both hardened his own heart and that God hardened it. Well, what do we make of this? Well, I think personally, and, and this will get fleshed out more as we continue on in Romans 9, but I think personally that this is in, keepings with Roma, in keeping with Romans 1.24. You recall Paul tells us that there are those in their sin who are so far gone that get, God gave them up to their lusts. I think that's what we see with Pharaoh. But what's more interesting than that is that God did so. He used Pharaoh with a purpose that he might show his power in Pharaoh and that his name, God's name, might be proclaimed on all the earth. God's purposes are even served by those who seek to thwart his purposes. So God is sovereign over good and over evil. Nothing happens outside of God's control. Do you have a place for that in your theology? If you don't, and you can't accept that, then the God that you believe in is too small, and He's not the God of the Bible. Verse 18. So then God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He he wills. God is the I am. He is also the I will. God does as He wills. He does as He pleases. So the question, what about the Jews, is answered with, what about anyone? Why doesn't He save all the Jews? Is there any injustice in God? By no means. The question isn't, why doesn't God save such and such? This is key. The question is, why does God save anyone? And the answer is, God has mercy on whomever He wills. It's not anything in us that saves us. We don't deserve it in ourselves. It's up to God who has mercy. Now, I recognize, if you're tracking along with this argument, there are a lot of questions. Like, did God create a bunch of robots? Or, what about evangelism? Why are we going out and evangelizing if God just chooses? Are we responsible for our own sin? And are we responsible for rejecting Christ if God chooses? And there are a bunch more. In closing, I'm not going to answer any of those questions. I suspect 
though, and I'm going to lay this right on their laps, that my fellow elders who are going to have to continue on in this text may address some of those questions. I'm just kind of teeing it up for them uh, today. I hope they feel that way. Um, teeing them up or putting them in a sand trap, one of the two. Um, so getting back my last semester of college and my time on the, on the plumbing crew. So Amber and I were actually engaged at the time. <clears throat> and I remember going over to her apartment one evening, pulling out my Bible, reading Romans 9 to her, and begging, pleading, literally weeping for her to tell me that it meant something different than what it straightforwardly said. She couldn't. And there were plenty of folks in my life who would bend themselves in a pretzel to try to tell me why Romans 9 didn't say what Romans 9 clearly said. And all these clever arguments to get around it, which, side note, sound eerily similar in kind to the types of arguments that you hear today, which are used to deny the clear biblical teaching on sexuality. So just take that for what it's worth. But that semester, I had to decide. Would I follow my own wicked heart, or would I trust in God's Word? Would I trust in myself, or would I trust God? And by God's grace, I chose to trust in Him even when I didn't understand. And that very thing, the rock of Romans 9 upon which my faith was being dashed became the firm foundation of everything that I believe about God and everything I am today. I want to be careful in expressing that I had to make a decision to believe this. It's not as if my view or my belief in it somehow ratifies it or makes it reality. No. Romans 9 simply expresses the reality of who God is, and I conformed to that reality. But I truly believe that it changed the trajectory of my life, this one chapter in the Bible. The Bible gives us a picture of a God who is in complete control of every aspect of the entire universe. This is God's Word, and we believe it even when it's hard. And this is tough because we, we don't often understand the details of why. And related to this, when my, when my stepmom passed away unexpectedly a few weeks back, the very first thing that my sister said to me when I spoke to her on the phone is she said, I don't understand why this happened. And my prayer, every time I've prayed for her, every time I've prayed with her since then, has been that she wouldn't cling to the why because she's never going to be able to answer that question. But we can cling to the who. Romans 9 taught me the who. The who to whom we cling is the sovereign God of the universe. The God whose word has not failed. The God whose promise to Israel was fulfilled through His Son, sent in the flesh to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and be raised from the dead. The God from whom we deserve nothing but judgment, but who sovereignly chooses to show mercy to some of us that we might be saved by the work of His Son. There is no injustice in Him. That is the who. Now, oftentimes we look at situations in our life or tough passages of Scripture and we think we can see the why. 
<laughs> it seems obvious to me that God sovereignly orchestrated that I would be the only student member of the plumbing crew and that we wouldn't be busy in order that he might teach me something. I think I see the why in that. I have to be careful because I could be wrong, but here I am 18 years teaching this to you. And nobody picked me to, side note, it just occurred to me, no one picked me to lead us off in this chapter. The schedule just kind of fell that way. Um, sovereignty? Um, I don't know. But a lot of times, most of the time, we look at situations like my stepmom's early death, we can't give a why. Or we ask the question, why does God save some and not others? We don't have a full explanation, but we have to trust in the who. Maybe you look at Romans 9 and you don't fully understand the why behind it. We're like toddlers sitting at our father's feet being explained advanced mathematics. We may ultimately never understand the why, but we trust in the one who throughout Scripture has proven to be loving and merciful and good. This is God's word. Even when we don't understand the why, we believe in the who. Let's pray. Father, when we come to tough passages of Scripture, we have to confess to you that when we don't understand it, our tendency is to reject it. But, Father, help us to seek with everything that we have to understand. Help us to dig into the arguments, to try to understand them, try to understand what Scripture is saying. But, Father, at the end of it all, if anything is left up to mystery, Father, help us to lean on You. Help us to lean on You who have been so good to us. You have been faithful to us in giving us Your Word to give us everything we need to trust in and serve You. God, help us to lean on that. We thank You that our salvation is not dependent on us because if it were dependent on us, nobody would be saved. Even if we don't understand it, Father, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for how it's worked in the lives of every person who is here, who has been able today to hear your word and to hear the gospel preached. Father, we pray that it would bear fruit. For those who don't believe, Father, save them. For those who do believe, help us to lean even more fully on your word and on the reality of who you are. Again, God, we know that we can't do this on our own. We pray that you would do it by the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen.